let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we pray that you will open our minds to your amazing plan of life, where to live, all things give, and the way of life that does not involve giving is in fact dying. May we see that clearly this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to tell you two stories to begin with. The first is the story of our first attempt at planting kale in the garden that we now work. The second is a story uh, about John Kempf. How many of you know John Kempf, K-E-M-P-F? We now have one person. He's an Amish gentleman that runs a, a company called Advancing Eco Agriculture. If you're not aware of that company, look it up. Uh, they have a lot to teach us. It's a very interesting uh, company and they deal with soils and regenerative agriculture. But first, the story of our kale. We cleared the land uh, that our garden is on. It had mixed forest on it, and we sawed up the wood and built our barn. Now the soil in Maine, where we live, is by and large blue marine clay. It's pure enough that you can uh, make bricks out of it. In fact, in the woods around our property, there are a few old cellar holes and you can dig handmade bricks out of them uh, from chimneys in past years. That's what they did with that blue marine clay. It has a pH of about five. Uh, it grows trees pretty well, particularly pine trees and black spruce and birch and uh, not oak very well. Um, so we cleared it and I knew we would have some work to do and we enriched the soil a bit with seaweed and uh, started off on our first year. And we planted the kale and it came up okay and then the bugs ate it. I mean they ate it. They, it was gone. They just ate it. Now. Lynn and I have had a certified organic garden before and, and you know I didn't think I was that much of a novice and I didn't want to spray it with anything so we didn't get any kale that year. This year, 13 years later, after we've tested our soil, amended our soil, um, continued to haul seaweed up from the shore, we live on the, uh, on the shore, and uh, work with our uh, soil. You know, we grew beautiful kale. And that's, that's in Maine, you know, where it gets cold. And if you can grow things in Maine, you can grow it anywhere. Uh, but we had kale, you know, this, this tall. In fact, we picked our last, some of our last kale um, just recently. I mentioned that this morning. Oh, it was so good. No bugs. What was the difference? Did the bugs get tired and leave? 
No, they didn't find the kale tasty anymore. You see, bugs are nature's garbage collectors. And the first kale I tried to grow wasn't worth me eating. So it was food for the bugs. The first thing that you want to do when you have bug problems is ask yourself, why? Why are the bugs coming here? Bugs are nature's garbage collectors. If the plants are healthy, they by and large leave them be. Okay? I want you to keep that in mind. And there's another little seed I want to plant in there. It's really the theme of what I have to say today, and that is plants develop polyphenolic antioxidants. You'll hear that term again and again this afternoon. They develop polyphenolic antioxidants in order to protect themselves against disease and bugs, insects. Those same compounds that protect the plants protect you and me from disease. That's really important to understand. Okay? Second story. Backyard tomatoes. Has anyone heard of backyard tomatoes? If you're from the Northeast, you have. Backyard Tomatoes is a huge uh, company in Maine and Massachusetts that grows tomatoes. And uh, the stores in the winter are full of these gorgeous uh, vine-ripe tomatoes that are grown in greenhouses. And uh, about two years ago, they had white fly infestation in their greenhouses and they tried everything to get rid of them. They had no success. Finally, they shut down their entire operation, got rid of all the plants, sterilized the soil, and started over. That was an expensive adventure. It cost them a year's, almost a year's production very expensive. At the same time, one of their competitors had a white fly infestation in their greenhouses, and they called up John Kempf. John came to their greenhouse, and he does what his company does, among other things. He took a brand new little leaf off the top of the tomato plant, and then he took an old leaf off the tomato plant at the bottom, and he did what's called plant sap analysis. Has anyone heard of that? Yeah, more of you have, plant sap analysis. That tells you in real time what the minerals are, particularly, that the plant is able to absorb from the soil. In the new leaf, the plant will shunt minerals to it that the plant is deficient in because it wants to grow. And so it will preferentially 
put a higher concentration in the new leaf of things that it doesn't have quite enough of. So those will be lower in the old leaf and higher in the new. If it has too much, a toxic level of a mineral or other substance, it stores it in the old leaf and it's relatively less in the young leaf. So John did a plant sap analysis and found that the plants were deficient in nickel. Now nickel we didn't even know was an essential nutrient for plants until recently. And it's only needed in very small amounts, but they were deficient in nickel. So he, he, he mixed up a foliar spray and he said, you have three big greenhouses, but we're only going to spray one of these greenhouses, the center one. So he mixed his uh, foliar spray of a dilute nickel solution and then sprayed the tomatoes. Nothing happened for the first day or the second day. By the third and fourth day, they noticed that the white flies had become, began leaving the greenhouse. They weren't dying, they were leaving. By the end of two weeks, there were no white flies left in that center greenhouse. Still very much alive in the two on the sides, and then he sprayed that, those as well, and the white fly infestation was at an end. What had happened? The plants were deficient and in, in an essential polyphenolic antioxidant that the white flies didn't like. With the addition of the foliar feed, the plant was able to make the necessary defense chemical and then the white flies left. Bugs are nature's garbage collectors. So keep that scenario in your mind, and then I want to shift gears for a moment and talk about what might seem like a completely different topic. We're going to come back to that, and we're going to look at glyphosate. Do you know what glyphosate is? It's the active ingredient in Roundup and several other weed, chemical, weed killers. But first, a little interlude. Hippocrates said, let food be your medicine and let your medicine be food. But for much of the history of medical care, we as physicians and other healthcare practitioners have spent most of our time doing two things. One, identifying the problem, that is, diagnosing the illness. Two, looking for the drug to treat it. If you have high blood pressure, you go to your doctor and he gives you an antihypertensive. Does that cure your illness? No, it treats it and it's very effective treatment often. It has been shown definitely to reduce the risk of stroke and heart attack. In fact, the numbers are like this. If you have high blood pressure, what is high blood pressure? It's anything over 140 systolic 
over 90 diastolic. If I take medicine and lower your blood pressure with it, for every two points using medicine, I lower your systolic blood pressure, your risk of having a stroke will drop 15%, and your risk of having a heart attack will drop 10%. That's a pretty good return. If I was going to Vegas and I put $2 in and get 15 out reliably, that wouldn't be gambling, it would be a really nice business, right? That's what doctors can do with antihypertensives, and it makes sense to use them until you drop below 140 over 90, and then the side effects of those medicines starts to increase, and the benefit starts to decrease. And so by the time you get down to 120 over 80, you get more problems from the medicine than you get benefit from the medicine. But if you lower the blood pressure naturally without the use of drugs, you continue to get benefit all the way down to 115 systolic. So medication works to a point, but there's side effects to medicine. And then there are real problems. So um, anytime we can treat the problem rather than the illness, anytime we can go to the cause rather than the symptom, we're better off. You go in to see the doctor and you've got pneumonia. You should probably take an antibiotic, especially if hydrotherapy has failed. But why did you get the pneumonia in the first place? Um, for those of you that uh, uh, know about the book Ministry of Healing, there's an interesting uh, paragraph in there. And I think no matter what you're reading from, the important thing that you should do, whether you think it's inspired or not, is to ask yourself, does this make sense? We should never turn off our brains, even when we're studying inspiration, right? So listen to this and see if it makes sense. Let physicians teach the people that restorative power is not in drugs, but in nature. Disease is an effort of nature to free the system from conditions that result from a violation of the laws of health. In the case of sickness, the cause should be ascertained. Unhealthful conditions should be changed and wrong habits corrected. Then nature is to be assisted in her effort to expel the impurities and reestablish right conditions in the system. Does that make sense? So let's look at hypertension. We used to call it essential hypertension. What does that mean? Well, you know, you're getting older, you need a higher blood pressure because your arteries are growing older and that's essential. Who said? In healthy populations, the blood pressure does not go up with aging. It only goes up when your arteries deteriorate and are narrowed. 
It's nature's way of trying to get enough blood flow around to your body through narrow, diseased arteries. You know, if you're traveling down a, a four-lane highway, as my wife and I did yesterday, and suddenly your side of the four, that is two, narrows to one, what happens to the pressure on the traffic? Well, my pressure went up, I can tell you that. And everything gets crowded, and if you have to maintain the same flow, you've got to speed it up or something. And that didn't happen, it slowed down. We are going three miles an hour on Highway 10. Yeah, I said to her, we should get out and walk, we'll get there sooner. See, the body increases the pressure to maintain the flow when the arteries narrow, and the answer is not to give a drug. The answer is to fix the roadway of the body, which happens to be the arteries. And you can do that very nicely with lifestyle change. Very important to ask yourself, why is this problem here rather than just throwing a medication at it? Too long, for too long, we have just said, oh, your problem's high blood pressure, here, take this pill. Or your problem is heart disease, here, take this series of six or seven pills instead of correcting the underlying problem. In agriculture, now we're back to agriculture, it seems that to some extent the same course has been followed. The pest or disease-causing agent is identified, ah, black spot, or, oh, it's those white flies, or whatever. The right pesticide is determined and sprayed, and then we assume the problem is solved. Instead, if we focused on the nutritional aspects of the plant and assured that not only were the necessary soil constituents present, but actually bioavailable bio and absorbed, things would go better. And I'm not a soils expert, though I've studied it quite a bit. There are several soils experts here, but I will tell you, almost all, if not all, plant diseases can be prevented and often cured with proper soil care and amendment. Is that right, Mrs. Dysinger? Yeah. That is critical. And I know I'm going to make that other comment that I did at the beginning. And if the plant is healthy and you eat it, you too will be healthier. Now, some people tell you that the plants are all deficient and so you have to take supplements. Well, that would be like the doctor saying, your problem is high blood pressure and I need to give you not one medicine, but two and three and four and five. Now, wait a minute. Supplements and drugs, are they the same? They can be. What most people don't realize is these polyphenolic antioxidants. If you study organic chemistry, you know about redox equations. 
You can go from reduction to oxidation and oxidation to reduction. You can run them both ways. All you have to do is change the concentration of the substrates. And at one level, these polyphenolic antioxidants are helpful. If you take them too high, they become harmful. You know what my problem is? I'm not smart enough to know the right level. God is. And if the plant is really healthy, chances are the levels are just right for you. That's the way it works. However, if you're not a creationist like me, no problem. All you have to say is, well, those plants and I evolved together over millions of years, and I'll bet that my body adapted. Either way you want to play it, you end up at the same point. Be very careful when you artificially mess with Mother Nature. Healthy soil makes healthy plants, makes healthy people. Now I'd like to shift gears again, and then we're going to come back and look more at disease states. And I'm going to leave quite a bit of time at the end for you to ask questions uh, if you'd like. And if you don't want to, again, the sunshine beckons. So we're back to glyphosate. Glyphosate is a very interesting compound, and it has a very interesting story. It was first used as a weed killer in 1974. Uh, before that, it was also used, uh, and in the early 70s as well, it was used in another application. Do you know what the first use of glyphosate was? As a chelator. It was used as a chelator to clean boilers because it complexed the minerals very nicely, the hard water deposits, chelated them, and it was great for cleaning boilers. They manufactured it for that and then noticed that it would kill plants. And so they patented it then as a weed killer. And it was in use as a weed killer for quite a few years. And then one very smart scientist, and these guys that work on uh, GMO and glyphosate, they're not dumb, they're very smart. And they are, I think, many of them, trying really hard to help. Now some of them, we can talk about sinister and a plot and all of this, but some of the brightest minds work for these companies. And one day there was a guy that noticed there was a, um, a basin or a, a tank, tub of water, and he noticed that the water seemed to be growing something. And he knew that that water had glyphosate in it, and they had observed that glyphosate was able to kill most bacteria. But here in this water, it seemed to be growing a bacteria very well. And he thought, now that's interesting. This bacteria must have developed some way of resisting the killing effect of glyphosate. And so they took that 
water and they isolated E. coli from it. E. coli is a bacteria that's found in our bodies. It's, it's a resident of all of our colons. It causes urinary tract infections if it gets out of the colon and up into the urinary system. It can cause pneumonia and other things, but usually it's just a normal bacterium that grows in our colon and doesn't cause any problems. But this bacteria had developed a, a resistance to the killing effect of glyphosate. They identified that the bacteria was able to make a molecule that blocked glyphosate's effect. Now, how does glyphosate work? It works by interrupting the shikimate pathway of protein synthesis. Uh, we don't have that pathway in us, and that's, that's a really good thing, but bacteria have it, fungi have it, and plants have it. And normally when you spray glyphosate on a plant, it dies because it cannot make these, uh, it can no longer run the shikimate pathway of protein synthesis, which is the pathway it needs to make polyphenolic antioxidants. Almost all of the polyphenolic antioxidants are made through the shikimate pathway. So when you spray that plant with Roundup, how fast does it die? Pretty fast. Does it die the day you spray it? No, it takes a while. And over time, you know, it dies and then it, it takes, what's happening? That pathway is blocked and gradually the plant is weakened and disease kills it. The glyphosate does not kill it directly. It blocks the shikimate pathway of protein synthesis and other diseases kill the plant. So now we have an E. coli that's resistant. They find the molecule the compound that this E. coli made, and then they did something really smart. I mean, these guys were clever. They isolated the gene from the E. coli that transcribed into this molecule, took that gene out and said, now, what if we splice that gene into a plant? Maybe the plant wouldn't die when we sprayed glyphosate on it. And in fact, that's what happened. Put this gene in a corn plant and you can spray it all day long with glyphosate and it doesn't kill it. So now we've got a great setup. We can make plants that have this gene in them so glyphosate won't kill it. Now, if glyphosate had no other effects, that could be really beneficial to humanity because tilling the soil, is that good for the plant? Do you see God's tillers out there? Oh yeah, you do earthworms and moles and different things, but God doesn't turn that soil over with a plow every year, does he? No, in fact, some people will say that it's best not to till in the conventional way for soil structure. And so if we can just 
spray the weeds and not till the soil, maybe it'll get better. That was the thinking. And it'll certainly save time. We won't have to have those kids weeding the whole garden on those tractors. Did someone see that? They have these little diggers and laying down on this thing, going over the pasture, weeding. We won't have to have it. We'll just drive through and spray all the stuff we want dead and all the good stuff will live. And it was a really neat idea, except for the fact that nature is smart. And gradually, other plants developed that same thing, the ability to resist glyphosate. They're called now what? Super weeds. Can't kill them with glyphosate. So you ramp up the dose and then you spray them again and, and then you gotta get 2,4-D and then you've gotta get another toxic chemical. But the good news about glyphosate is it had a really low LD50. Uh, sorry, really high LD50. What's an LD50? That's the dose at which 50% of the people that drink it will die. So the LD50 for glyphosate is about a half a cup. So if we gave every one of you here in this room a half a cup of glyphosate, only half of you would die. And you say, well, that's pretty potent stuff. Not compared to other pesticides and herbicides. It's really pretty safe. And so, you know, Monsanto said, this is great. We've got a low toxicity herbicide and we can really ramp up production here. And it worked beautifully. It came out first, the Roundup Ready crops, as they're called, came out first in the early 1990s. They didn't really take off until the late 90s or early 2000. So how long have we been dealing with this GMO stuff? Remember, 90% of GMO crops are Roundup Ready. So if you really want to know about GMO, 90% of it is the glyphosate story. So how many years have we really been playing with this glyphosate in our food supply? About 20 at most, 17 to 20. But let's go back and think. Now, wait a minute. What was glyphosate first used for? Chelator. And what does a chelator do? It binds minerals. Where? In the soil. But the half-life of glyphosate is only about 90 to 140 days. So is that a problem? The half-life of glyphosate unbound, once it binds to the mineral, its half-life is much, much, much longer. Some people estimate as high as 22 years. So now we've been using glyphosate heavily and we spread millions of pounds of this stuff a year, billions of pounds world worldwide. We've been using it for less than one half-life of the drug, of the, pest, the herbicide. So we aren't even yet seeing the full toxic effect of this but it's binding the minerals in our soil. 
What else is it doing? It was also patented as what? An antibiotic. Now, it wasn't a really good antibiotic, so it never made it into my area of practice, medicine, but it still carries a patent as an antibiotic. Do you think that might affect the soil? Yeah, if you went to one of the soil conferences here, I am sure that they talked to you about the microbiome in the soil, right? the bacteria and the fungi and the delicate interplay. You know, without those bacteria and fungi in the soil, you can't get the minerals absorbed through the rootlets and up into the plant. That's why you can have the mineral in the soil and not find it in the plant sap analysis because it isn't absorbed. It can be in a bound form in the soil and not bioavailable. So we've been spraying this stuff for about one half life in the bound form. Has that started to have an effect? Yes. Some farmers have found that they have to supra-fertilize uh, their soil with minerals. Why? Because all the minerals in them over the years of application of glyphosate have been bound and they can no longer, they're, they're not available for the plant. If you do a soil analysis, it has plenty of minerals there, but then if you do actual plant sap analysis, there's none in the plant or very little. What effect would that have on the plant if it did live? It would be more susceptible to disease. They've done quite a few um, comparisons between conventional GMO crops and organic crops. And one thing that all the studies show is pesticide levels are much higher on the GMO crops, right? Why? They're weakened to some extent. But the other thing that they find is there's not much difference between carbohydrate, protein, and sugar levels. In fact, in some cases, they're higher in the conventionally raised GMO crops. But are polyphenolic antioxidants important to you? Oh yeah, they are. They're very, very important to you. Now it's interesting that the plant produces the polyphenolic antioxidants in re particularly, they ramp up the level of them in response to stress. And there are studies on, you can look them up, that show that glyphosate sprayed plants have higher levels of, of the polyphenolic antioxidants. Does that make sense? Yes, because if you spray the plant with a poison and it's somewhat resistant to it, Roundup Ready, the plant in response to that attack tries to make more to resist it. So you can see studies going both ways, don't be confused. You can also see that if you spray glyphosate on the soil, soil bacterial activity goes up initially 
And there's studies that show, oh, spray glyphosate on the soil and the bacteria levels go up. No, the levels don't go up, but the activity goes as the bacteria are trying to resist the effect of the glyphosate on them. But if you look at the majority of the studies, they show that in fact organic methods result in higher polyphenolic antioxidant levels and the plants can grow just as well with less disease. If you want the plants to resist disease, you need to give them the optimum nutrition so that you can resist disease when you eat them. Very, very important. Now, I've used the word polyphenolic antioxidants multiple times. What are some of the common ones? So here's a list. I'll be testing you shortly, so make, no, I won't. Uh, but you may recognize some of these and uh, their effect. Elagic acid. That's very rich in raspberries. It's been shown to be effective in helping you resist cancer. And then there's the whole class of still beans. Still beans are um, very active. Uh, they are um, phytoestrogens, among other things. And you may know one of them called resveratrol. Anyone heard of resveratrol? And what is it found in? What? Grapes. What's it the highest in? Actually, it's higher in peanuts, I think. So you don't have to drink wine like they tell you. You can eat peanuts, but red grapes are fine. And muscadine grapes, you know, is Wes here? No, anyway, Wes spoke last night, uh, and he said muscadine grapes are very disease resistant. And oh, by the way, they're very high in antioxidants. They're higher than this and this and this. Well, of course. Now you understand why you could say that, right? Because if they're very high in the polyphenolic antioxidants, of course they're going to resist disease because that's what those things are for. And guess what? If they're really high in those, you ought to eat them because it'll help you resist disease as well. Lignans. These are the most potent phytoestrogen. What are they found in? What's the highest in lignans? Yeah, I heard it right there, flaxseed. Flaxseed is very high in lignans. And guess what? They did a head-to-head -head trial of flax against the most commonly prescribed antihypertensive. It was uh, one of the ACE inhibitors, if you're interested. And they found that flax lowered the blood pressure more than the standard antihypertensive. Interesting. The average drop was about 10 points. 10 to 15 points was uh, the drop with flax. So next time you go to your doctor, if your blood pressure's up, say, how about if I try two tablespoons of flax meal a day? Notice I said flax meal. If you have the seeds, they're great for you, but they go in and they come out relatively unchanged. Grind them and that doesn't happen. Are there any other benefits to flax? Yes, 
They have been shown to reduce your cholesterol because of the uh, soluble fiber. They also help prevent constipation, though they do thicken the stool and it gives some people trouble as a result of that. They lower breast cancer risk and they lower prostate cancer risk. And in some studies look like they slow down benign prostatic hypertrophy as well and help with those symptoms. So they do lots of good things. The other thing that they do, because they are a rich source of the uh, omega-3 fatty acids, is they are good for arthritis. Uh, most of my patients tell me that if they have two tablespoons a day, it works about as well for them at reducing inflammation as the standard Advil dose without the side effects. You know what the side effects of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are? That's Advil and naproxen and those. Side effects are increased risk of death through heart attack, stroke, and high blood pressure. So at least you feel better while you're dying. <laughs> Another one uh, that we talk about is uh, caffeic acid. Caffeic acid, as you might guess, is found in coffee. And there have been a lot of really good studies published about the benefits of coffee. And there are many benefits to coffee. Don't panic. Um, why? Because coffee is the number one source of antioxidants in the American diet. If you rank coffee against all commodities in the world, it comes second only to oil. You know, that's like gas in your car and oil in your engine. Petroleum is the only commodity that's sold more than coffee. And that is amazing. So the number of antioxidants that people get from coffee is very high. And if that's your primary source of the polyphenolic antioxidants, of course you're going to do better. But what are the other source in the American diet? Well, you have coffee and a donut. How much do you get from the donut? Not much. So you're way better off to have the coffee and the donut than the donut alone. But don't go home and tell people that I told you to drink that. I'd say do a head-to-head -head trial with kale tea and you won't have the problems with caffeine. Do you know how caffeine works? It increases the epinephrine and norepinephrine levels in your body. What's that? That's the fight and flight chemical. Do we have enough fighting in this world? I think so. Maybe we should drink more kale juice and less coffee. But I'll leave that up to you. Uh, then there's uh, the flavonoids. They're found in, in uh, and by the way, caffeic acid is found just as much in other substances, including fruit. You don't have to drink the coffee to get it, although, like I say, if you're going to have coffee and a donut, uh, skip both, but if, if you're going to have that donut, I guess, and not KLT, get your antioxidants some way. Uh, flavonoids, they're found in onions, one of the richest sources, uh, and in garlics, and in leek, leeks, and in broccoli. Sorry, I should have dropped the S off of garlics. It's garlic and leeks and broccoli and kale and there's flavones and there's uh, 
uh, coumaric acid and, and on and on the list goes. All of these are very, very important at reducing inflammation in our body. That is critical for us in preventing chronic disease because all of the chronic diseases that we suffer from are dependent upon inflammation. Coronary artery disease wouldn't develop if you didn't have inflammation. In fact, that's what it is. Atherosclerosis is inflamed blood vessels. And if you increase your level of these antioxidants, it really helps to decrease your risk for these uh, vascular diseases. If you're worried about coronary disease, as uh, Caldwell Esselstyn says, greens every day. Uh, Got to have those greens because they're so rich in these, particularly if you raise those greens yourself, cut them and get them onto your plate before too many hours have gone by. If you uh, cut the greens in California and ship them here to Florida or ship them up to Maine, you've got your own greens here in the winter they've lost a third of their nutritive value, a third of their uh, antioxidant capacity is already lost. You're far better off to cut them and eat them as uh, soon as you can. And, and there isn't anywhere in this country that you can't grow microgreens indoors. I mean, you can do it. Or you can grow, you can sprout things and you'll get a lot of these uh, uh, substances. So, especially with the greens, do your very best to get them fresh, uh, at least locally from a local farmer if you don't want to grow your own. Uh, so with that, we have about uh, 10 minutes left uh, by my calculation, and I'll take any questions that you may have. Okay, so are we, oh, one. I thought we were headed for the sun. You mentioned about uh, flaxseed. Does it have to be ground fresh every day? Okay, the question was about flaxseed. Does it have to be ground fresh every day? No, but if you don't grind it fresh every day, refrigerate it and seal it because there is a problem uh, with oxidation of those omega-3 fatty acids. It's best, I think, to grind it fresh daily, but if you grind a little too much, don't worry. Uh, here's an interesting story for you. Uh, my wife and I have a Australian Shepherd. He's 12 years old now, and he started to limp. And uh, we took him to the vet, and the vet said, ah, he's just an old dog. He's got arthritis in his uh, elbow. I didn't know dogs have elbows, but I guess they do. And so I, he said, well, you can put him on some medicine. And um, I said, we'll put him on flax. And uh, he did really well. He stopped limping, started running again. It, he loves the flax. I just mix it with a little peanut butter. And uh, he loves that. So he... he he looks forward to that every morning, and it fixed up his arthritis. And then uh, last week, I noticed he was limping on his right rear leg, and I thought, oh no, my flax isn't working. What am I going to do? 
And, uh, you know, it got worse and worse. And he's a really long-haired dog in Maine in the winter. And so uh, finally I examined him and uh, he had tangled with a porcupine and I hadn't known it. And I pulled 14 quills out of his right hind leg. Flax wasn't going to fix that. <laughs> All right, any other questions? No, no. The, the, the question is, what, what about the half-life of glyphosate? First of all, this is hotly debated, and I can guarantee you that there are people who use it who will say the half-life is never longer than 140 days. Never, ever, ever. Okay, and they've got science to prove it. But what I said was, when glyphosate binds to the soil, its half-life gets longer. Well, in a way that's good because if it's bound to the soil, it's not washing down the stream and into the ocean and you know, causing worldwide problems. But in a way that's bad as well because when it's bound, it stays there and has an effect for an extended period of time. And the quote that I gave you on the 22 years is from Don Huber and Michael McNeil, both of whom uh, if you go on the web, there are questions about, but having met them both and talked with them, I think they're good scientists. That's just my opinion. You make up your own mind. Next question. Could that mess with your uh, gut bacteria? Oh, great question. Could that mess with your gut bacteria? That is, that being glyphosate. You bet it could. In fact, remember I said it has a really low LD50, and so it's really safe, except to your bacteria in your gut. And do those have anything to do with disease? Yeah, we're only beginning to understand. Now, some people have said that if you just get a fecal transport, a transplant, it'll kill all, care for all your problems. Your high blood pressure will go away and your diabetes will go away. And, this will go away and everything will be fine. It will definitely help. But um, why do you have the microbiome that you do? Because of the food that you eat. And the bacteria that you're exposed to from your mama on up. Yeah, so if you're a diabetic and you come to me and you say, I want a fecal transplant, I could say, okay, here's a good one from a really good vegan. He's just right. And how long it'll last? Well, maybe a month, unless you change your diet. If you change your diet up front, you're gonna change your microbiome in two weeks. But if you have repeated exposure to glyphosate, you're going to kill off good bacteria. You're going to pre-select for resistant bacteria, of which salmonella is particularly good at resisting glyphosate and E. coli. And then you could get an infection with one of those that's multiple drug resistant. Great question. Furthermore, with repeated exposure, you begin to select for bacteria that are associated with inflammation. 
Now, we know that there are inflammatory bacteria and bacteria that aren't as inflammatory. And it just so happens that people on a plant-based diet shift toward the bacteria that make butyrate. Butyrate or butyric acid is a substance that downregulates the immune system. Tells it, hey, everything's cool here. Don't be on high alert. It doesn't turn it off, but it downregulates it. And so there's less inflammation in the body. So if I have someone come in who has rheumatoid arthritis and their immune system is ramped up, I could put them on prednisone. But prednisone has lots of side effects. If I put them on a strict plant-based diet with no refined sugars, it ca that causes inflammation as well. 70% of the time, not 100%, but 70% of the time, their rheumatoid arthritis goes away. That also helps for multiple sclerosis, same reason. I'm changing their gut bacteria, I'm reducing inflammation. It probably is in play with uh, inflammatory bowel disease. It's probably in play with hypertension. It's probably in play with all of the inflammatory chronic diseases. So that's a great point. Glyphosate, low exposure over a long time, gradually shifts your microbiome. Yes, Lynn. So my wife said, if you want to uh, keep your microbiome happy, avoid messing with it, what would you avoid eating? Well, the foods that have the most uh, exposure to glyphosate are the GMO crops. And that's the number one is soy, and after that, corn. So they're your top ones. But then there's wheat and potatoes. Why? Because they use glyphosate to kill the wheat just before harvest so they can desiccate it so they can harvest grain that's more mature and harder on the shelf. So wheat and potatoes also are often sprayed with glyphosate, not to kill weeds, but to kill them at harvest time, and that can mess with your uh, microbiome as well. Many people today are complaining of gluten intolerance. Now there is a condition called celiac disease that is true gluten intolerance. There are some people that don't tolerate gluten well, but most of them I find if I can get them on a glyphosate-free diet, their symptoms go away. I have one patient who found that whenever she ate potatoes, she got terrible gastroesophageal reflux. Then she switched to organic potatoes that her husband grew in her garden, and when she ate those, she had no problem. I think it was the glyphosate that caused the reflux. She didn't have an acute deficiency of one of the uh, proton pump inhibitors, you know, those medicines like omeprazole, et cetera. She had a problem with toxicity 
from glyphosate. Question over here. Yes. Is that bound glyphosate also phytocidal? Is the bound glyphosate it, it, does it kill plants? No, not when it's bound because it's, all of its active sites are bound and it's there in the soil, but it binds the minerals and free can kill the, the plants or other phytocidal, as you said. Absolutely. If, if you use too much glyphosate in the soil and it binds the minerals, it affects tree growth. It will also affect the trees because there's an excess of unbound. Yeah, it, if it, on my property, nobody uses glyphosate. We, we don't bring it on. No, no, no. Bad idea. Question here. Pardon? Are oats, also oats. Uh, ma many of the oats are, so you have to be careful of oats as well. And of course, there's drift from one field to another, so you may have an organically produced field, and it still has glyphosate in it. Um, you may be interested to know that they found glyphosate in breast milk. They found glyphosate in the urine of almost all subjects tested in this country. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.